Thanks for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Debbie Velasquez, and today we'll be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to pull in and quantify cultural data from around the world to help inform our insights today and understand changes in human behavior. Today's conversation centers on how we as a society and culture at large are moving the dial forward and uplifting Black women in leadership uh, as part of our Women's History Series, uh, or Women's History Month Series, rather. And I am joined today by my co-briefer, Ben Grinspan, and our insightful cast of commentators, including our Chief Client Officer, Davion Harris, as well as cultural strategist, Ketsi Tipe. Uh, hello, all. Um, before yeah. jumping into today's topic, we do want to mention that we stand in solidarity with Ukraine, and we're keeping anyone who has been personally impacted by the recent happenings near and dear to our hearts. Jumping into this first signal here. So last Friday, President Joe Biden formally nominated federal judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme, Supreme Court. Jackson is currently on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit and brings quote, extraordinary qualifications, deep experience and intellect and a rigorous judicial record to the court, Biden said at the White House. The president's rationale for explicitly wanting to fill liberal justice Stephen Breyer's spot once he retires in the summer is because he wants government bodies to more accurately portray the real diversity seen in the nation. Just five women, Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Amy Coney uh, Barnett have served on the Supreme Court so far. Um, only two black men, their girl, Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas have ever been appointed to the bench, but so far no black women have previously sat on the high court. From Brown's POV, quote, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the constitution and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and to the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations and Americans. So my question, um, Ketsi, I will toss this over to you. What does this historic nomination say about our nation's progression as a whole, or perhaps what do you think this is a response to uh, with regards to citizens of our nation and the powers that be? Yeah, I, I really think it says a lot. Um, I think that America does have a very rough past, um, but I think to see a continual progression, especially um, seeing a black woman being promoted to the Supreme Court, it just speaks to how things could be done. I think also to how um, black women, black American women can be seen um, from people who aren't part of the country. I know that um, with Black Lives Matter and a lot of the protests, I think that some of the prejudices and I think just seeing how um, black people were viewed from the outside in America um, says a lot and I think to see the sort of promotion um, highlights that although we do have our issues we are on a continual path to be um, more inclusive and I think just having that in mind seeing how we'll deal with Ukraine issues and from mm. a democratic perspective um, yeah. with this in mind will say a lot too. Speaking of um, Ben if you want to take us through this next signal yeah, yeah. Um, Can I add I'll... one thing before you go on to that? Go ahead. Well, I want to also, because I, I completely agree with Katsi in terms of the just the hopefulness um, that I think this moment as we reflect on brings. 
I also find very um, interesting the, the kind of discourse and commentary whenever we kind of have a historic moment around this, whether it's a woman, uh, you know, obviously black woman, it's, it's compounded when you think about the reactions and the scrutiny, um, you know, looking at comments from Tucker Carlson over the weekend, where uh, he essentially said that it's, uh, you know, you should only be elevated based on what you do, not on how you were born, not on your DNA, uh, in response to obviously uh, her appointment based on uh, Biden's commitment to uh, nominating a black woman. Um, but what's not uh, said or recognized in comments like that uh, is that that's what happens every day, right? When we think about, you know, people being elevated based on how they were born and their DNA, it's just the difference is what they look like. No one has to talk about it when there's a white male that's being elevated or given an opportunity. No one's questioning their, um, you know, their credentials or status uh, in, in the same way. And so I think, you know, this idea of being born into to privilege, we don't talk about it. It's just kind of the default. Whereas when it's a woman, when it's a black woman, then all of the, uh, the questions around, is she ready? Does she have the right experience? Is she only there because she's a black woman? So I think, you know, it's absolutely historic, but I think we also have to be sure and look at that discourse um, surrounding, you know, this nomination and ask ourselves, would these questions be asked if she was a man, if she were white, yeah. would we be saying the same things? Um, I, I'll jump, just before we jump into the next single, I will say in talking to my lawyer friends, people make uh, Katenji Brown-Jackson out to be like the Terminator in that she is incredibly, unbelievably qualified for this position. Like she is made to do this. She is, she was born for the Supreme Court. Um, and so the idea that any, that she's, uh, you know, getting any like favorable treatment here, it's just like, no, this woman is, is, is hyper-qualified. Um, I tend to think most Republicans beyond uh, Tucker Carlson are gonna like just let this one go uh, a little bit because it is, it would be really foolish to try to make uh, sort of that argument. And I don't, I don't know if anybody would even pay attention, honestly, given what else is going on in the news. Um, speaking of that, what else is going on in the news, um, obviously all this discussion today is happening in the shadow of the war Russia is waging on Ukraine. We're gonna talk about that by the way uh, in, a, in a couple days, but let's, let's focus on here because there is some actually some interesting overlapping news. It's worth pointing out uh, that Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Joe Biden's US uh, ambassador to the United Nations, has a lot on her plate right now, right? Um, it's also worth noting that Greenfield is a black woman and faces a lot of challenges others in the position might not. Uh, delving into the history here for a second, the US has actually had ambassadors of color uh, at the UN since the Carter administration, uh, being fairly progressive. Um, she is actually the third woman of color and the second black woman uh, to hold this role. So in the past you know, 30 years, we've seen uh, a fair amount of, uh, of very qualified people step into this role regardless of what they look like. Now, of course, for her part, Greenfield has been very active in the past week in trying to represent the U.S. interests uh, in the, as the crisis in Ukraine escalates. Uh, on Wednesday, she said, at the exact time as we are gathered in this council seeking peace, Putin delivered a message of war in total disdain for the responsibilities of the Security Council, which Russia is leading at the moment. Uh, this is a grave emergency. The Security Council needs to act. Well, that Security Council Act from earlier this week didn't work, but she is leading the movement that actually, as of the taping of this briefing, will happen a little later tonight um, to focus on uh, a full UN rebuke of, uh, of Russia and what they're doing to Ukraine. 
Um, so I think this is a fairly interesting moment, right? We have the US being represented uh, by a, a black woman at an incredibly historic moment. And in a space that let's be real, you know, it's an incredibly diverse space and not everyone shares all of our similar values or progressive values, at least on this panel uh, about gender uh, and racial equality. So Ketsi, I wanna bring you back in here. I guess, what does it mean right now to have a black woman representing the US at this really historic moment, especially at a moment where sort of Western liberal inclusive values are, are you know, taking a, or I suppose Putin's trying to take a beating to them. What do we, what do we make of, of, of this particular moment? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very similar to um, my first answer. I think it, yeah. it shows, um, yeah. <laughs> I think it does show that, that America is in a continual path. And I do think that in the past few years, it's been very um, divided. I think um, it's bipartisanship has been even stronger, but I think to have this sort of representative, it, it, it does give America a stronger democratic appeal. And I think especially during this time, um, it's what's needed and it really does make the support even stronger. Yeah, and let's not forget that part of what helped, uh, you know, in the in the '60s with the civil rights movement was a national embarrassment of the fact uh, that you know we were preaching all these democratic values abroad and we're not living up to them at home, right? That was a major part of sort of the international campaign. It was something that the Soviet Union used to uh, ding us over. So uh, these two are definitely connected. What happens at home does reverberate abroad. Um, let's move from uh, from high stakes international diplomacy to the world of medicine and uh, toys, actually. Uh, McLean's, a Canadian news magazine, reports that when Chica Stacy Orioa uh, arrived at the University of Toronto uh, as an incoming medical student, she found she was the only Black student in her cohort of 259 people. This was September of 2016, so not all that long ago. Um, and she quickly channeled her disappointment in the lack of diversity there into action advocating for processes that would increase the diversity in medicine uh, and becoming the face of the new Black student application program the following year at this very top tier Canadian uh, medical institution. So this piece here from McLean's goes on to tell us about the program, which encourages application for Black students, has already had remarkable success. When uh, Oriwa uh, graduated in 2020, she was the sole valedictorian of her class, uh, the only Black woman ever to receive that honor in the, in the school's 179-year history. Um, and the university had just admitted 24 Black students to its uh, cohort just four years after, five years after having only one. Um, in fact, to recognize her impact, here's where things get a little wild, Mattel, the toy maker, selected her for its Barbie role model program. Uh, starting in er, this past August, she was one of six women working on the front lines of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic who was immortalized with a Barbie doll. Quote, uh, it was such a full circle moment for me as a young girl who played with Barbies uh, and always really wanted uh, to see myself reflected, said Orioa. Uh, not only a child who wanted to be a physician, but also as a young black girl. Quote, I'm excited to be that role model for my own children. She just gave birth, mazel tov. <laughs> to, to her um, and to tell them about the things uh, that their mommy has done. Um, this push to show more uh, Black female leadership in the medical field comes at a really interesting time, right? As many of you may recall, Dr. Kizmekia Corbett, a Black woman herself, became one of the public faces of the COVID-19 vaccine as she helped to develop uh, the Moderna uh, version of that and helped, I think, to allay a lot of people's fears about who was putting this thing together. Having that Black face, having that female face was, was really vital. So Davion, I mean, I love this for our healthcare clients, if nothing for her leadership, but also that little extra, uh, that little extra spice of, of the, the, the Mattel tie-in. 
Um, that said, we recently did a study and we found that older consumers, particularly white ones, are not all that comfortable talking about sort of racial inequity in the healthcare space. So I guess my question is, how can brands navigate that? How do you lift up a, a figure like uh, like uh, Ms. Orioa um, and do it in a way that feels like everybody can can get behind why this matters and why this is valuable? Or do you have to step on some toes? I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I love this signal. I think it's so powerful on multiple levels. I mean, you think about, you know, the aspect of a, a black female doctor and valedictorian, um, you know, giving young black girls, as, as the other here points out, you know, someone who can, they can envision, um, not just imagine, you know, themselves as, um, you know, as you think about seeing others who are in that role. Um, but I also think, I mean, as, as you talk about Barbies, I mean, that's obviously been on the radar just even for all women and seeing women in positions that, you know, are professional capacities, um, not just kind of in this um, one uh, physical capacity. Um, obviously, there's been a lot in just the visuals of Barbie themselves. Right. Um, so I think that's powerful just in terms of what we're talking about and in terms of, you know, representation for all women and really for everyone, because we shouldn't just see women, whether you're a male or a female, in that particular capacity. So I think there's lots to be kind of learned and seen in terms of exposure and, and what that looks like for everyone. But I think it's particularly powerful as we think about uh, black females who can can look up in that way, as well as you talk about the healthcare experience. Uh, you know, as we know, there's so much distrust in the medical community for people of color, for black people, as it pertains to doctors, healthcare systems, trials. So, uh, you know, there's been studies even on the impact, um, you know, physical outcomes in terms of having black doctors uh, for black patients. Right. And so the, you know, in terms of care and kind of narrowing that discrepancy in care that, that, that happens. So I, I would say, I think everything from just that kind of aspirational level um, and professionalism, the Barbie and the visualization, as well as the kind of physical aspect and healthcare outcomes, this, you know, touches on so many different areas that are impactful for, for really everybody. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's hard to just fix the system right away, right? And I think what is maybe most powering, empowering about this signal is that it suggests that like, it's, you, you can bring in the new cohort, you can actively recruit more black students, uh, but also you got to think, uh, you got to think up, you got to think about the actual practice, you got to think younger about making people inspired to be interested in science to begin with. And obviously this figure is a woman who has done uh, quite a lot uh, in, in all kinds of directions. Um, Devery, uh, tell us about the yeah. Ava effect. Yes, so director Domaine Davis knows a thing or two about sacrifice as a black woman in Hollywood. Um, under the wing of the prestigious director Ava DuVernay, Davis acknowledges the challenges she faced while directing an episode of DuVernay's Queen Sugar uh, series, freshly out of the hospital with a broken ankle. Um, pulling inspiration from her own upbringing, see, seeing her mother as a young child juggle parenting uh, four children while attending night school, uh, uh, she was able to pull inspiration. Um, her commitment led to her casting Carrie Washington in her first leading role in Lift, a 2001 film Davis co-directed with Carrie Streeter. Uh, the produ production was created at a time where corporate benefactors and media con conglomerates were not eager to be in business with Black women, um, but still she worked hard and she saw the vision through. 
Um, and before its cable network release, Lyft actually earned uh, the 1998 Sundance and NHK International Filmmakers Award. It was also nominated for two Independent Spirit Awards, and it stood out at the 2001 Urban World uh, Film Festival. Uh, Showtime Network eventually acquired it, uh, which allowed many Black women and girls to recognize the complexity in their own friend groups, family members, and selves on screen for the very first time in a lot of cases. Uh, through it all, Davis remembered to, quote, not lose my own voice. And she credits the start of her career to Ava DuVernay, who exclusively hired women as directors on her series to provide the opportunities that were missing from the in entertainment industry. They are currently uh, both collaborating right now on another project for CW uh, that centers black high school age girls who have superpowers. So that's pretty exciting. Um, <laughs> my question here, uh, so Ava DuVernay has powered and founded something she called, it's, it's called Array and it's a film centered, uh, quote, grassroots distribution, arts and advocacy collective to support all types of artisans and creators. Um, Davis mentions that Queen Sugar Set was the only time that she's ever experienced the chance to work with a female grip as a crew member. Um, and so I'm going to ask Ketsi this question. Um, what does this say about the lack of diversity in the entertainment industry? Um, what is something that maybe other directors, filmmakers, people in the industry can learn from Ava sort of uh, cultivating this very you know, exclusive group. Yeah, I think that her not being able to find um, enough black women um, says a lot about how uh, black women's stories aren't really shared in the media and how that kind of um, promotes black women intersectionalism or intersectionalism within black identity. So I think her even making an effort to branch out and do this is um, very progressive and very forward. Um, and I think that it just needs to continue to be done. And I think that when it kind of mobilizes in this direction, it also kind of gives um, a chance for these stories to grow. And I think to, to, to give um, different identities within black womanhood more mm -hmm. space to share stories. Right. Davion, um, to expand on that, I, I'm interested in your perspective on how in this, you know, in this case, Ava DuVernay clearly has, you know, produced and cultivated a, a lot of like very successful black directors under her wing and you know what I guess what kind of positive example can or or yeah what does it say about the success of maintaining sort of like an exclusive affinity group of professionals and how that might lead to like wider success within an organization yeah absolutely I mean I, I think the you know the point is it's not about excluding anyone so much as ensuring there's inclusivity and where you need to over index and make a broader greater effort to recruit hone in invest in black creative talent and particularly black female uh, creative talent um it doesn't just exist in the same way um i believe it's somewhere around six percent of off-screen talent thinking about writers uh, creators uh directors um are black and even smaller percentage are are female of that and so thinking about you know to Ketsi's point it's not just about having the representation but it's also the stories um mm -hmm. that are being uh shared and not shared 
And so I think when you see, you know, stories like, you know, the Ava effect, when you think about insecure and the power and the success of that, where it wasn't, you know, even just one kind of aspect of, of black female, uh, you know, stories, it was many rolled into one show um, that really resonated with black women, but really brought, you know, it was even broader than that. So I think that sense of intentionality is what drives the, the sense of inclusion that needs to happen in this space. Yeah, I, I, I think it's cool that she's building, like breaking down the old boys club and sort of doing like a new girls club, you know? Um, it seems to me that uh, she's like leveraging some things that have excluded people uh, in a really smart way to be inclusive, but that's just my take. Yeah, no, to add to that, I, I, I think that's so great. Um, I've never heard someone put it that way. And I, uh, as far as you said, you know, it's not so much about exclusivity as much as it is like ensuring that there is space that is held for these people who have these skills and also share maybe lifestyles or certain ethnic backgrounds in common. Um, and I think that's there's a fear around that with people outside of those groups, they they fear that that means that they're excluded when, yeah, like you said, it's we're ensuring that, you know, something's going to get, a story's going to get told accurately and, and the job's going to get done. So, yeah. Um, Speaking of storytelling, so this next signal uh, speaks about best-selling and award-winning author E.B. Zoboy, who is the creator of picture books, uh, The People Remember, My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, American Street, and Pride. And now in her latest young adult novel, uh, Okoye to the People, uh, a Black Panther novel, the author explores all two real issues facing Black communities through the eyes of Marvel's beloved and respected Wakanda warrior, um, okay. Um, in the latest interview with Marvel blog writer Mackenzie Cadenhead, uh, Zoboy says that she always makes time for daydreaming and says that the best thing about being a woman creator um, of Marvel is getting to, quote, write about a Marvel hero that looks like me. So, you know, straightforward signal here. Um, I think this is so necessary right now, just, you know, providing hope and optimism. Um, for a future in storytelling and, you know, reminding us that it's very possible in moving the dial forward. Um, and, you know, it's it's necessary to tell stories like these. So, yeah. uh, Kathy, I'm interested um, in your perspective here. Why is diverse representat representation in storytelling so important? And why does it matter who is telling the story? Um, I think it's very important because I think especially with marginalized identities, it's very easy to kind of see them as a monolith because their identity is so limited in mass media. So I think that when you create more space, you are also creating more space for sub identities within that mass, mass identity to kind of share their stories. And I feel like that just shows how expansive the identity is and the richness that exists within it. And I think just showing that it, it offers a kind of a base for for people outside of the identity to learn more about it and I guess just resonate with the experience and I I feel like it also helps understand some of the struggles even more rather than just feeling like you know you're excluded from it well not excluded right. from it but you understand it yeah I think like um, for me with, with that signal in particular, one thing you know like just being an avid reader of books when I was a young child and and remembering that instantly I can tell if a story was about a person from a mar marginalized community and it was in first person, I could tell that it was 
going to be whitewashed. And mm. it was just like this instinctual thing. And I think more and more, you know, Gen Z, um, Gen Alpha and future generations, you know, won't have to um, imagine the realism within a character when, you know, like they're going to see the characters actualized through people who look like the characters, you know, telling the stories and vice versa. And I think that's beautiful and amazing. So. Um, Can I be a Marvel nerd here for one second? Um, I was, I saw the other day that it's the 50th anniversary of Marvel's first black uh, superhero, or at least main character, Nick Fury, which is pretty cool, right? Uh, and 50 years, I mean, that is a long time ago that, the, that this kicked in. And I mean, what's interesting about Marvel, if you really want to geek out here for a second, is that Marvel's breakthrough characters are always, have always been marginalized, right? The, the yeah. X-Men, sort of the mutants who feel pushed out of society, those were allegories about race and, and sexual orientation, frankly. Uh, you know, starting in the in the mid mid to early '60s, right? Even Spider-Man, in his own way, uh, sort of has these this uh, marginalized story. So it's great to see Marvel do this. I think it's really central to their brand DNA. Um, and I would, you know, I would encourage people who feel freaked out whenever there's discussion of like a female uh, Spider-Man or whatever, like recasting someone else uh, that you may not approve of, uh, to remember that Marvel has always been a progressive organization when it comes to this stuff. And if you don't like it, you don't have to read the comic book. Yeah. So jumping into something that definitely cannot go, uh, you know, uh, cannot be glossed over within this discussion is, you know, Black women and the correlation to mental health, um, specifically in this topic, you know, Black women in leadership roles. Um, so jumping over to this more grim reality, you know, we cannot mention the highs and supposed successes without discussing this. Um, this signals from Philadelphia Inquirer's opening, or the Philadelphia Inquirer, and its opening paragraph says, quote, depression and anxiety don't discriminate. They don't care about beauty. They don't care about money. They don't care about fame. They don't care how many advanced degrees a person has. Uh, they don't care about glamorous TV jobs and they certainly don't care about beauty queen titles. So, you know, as we recently learned the tragic news of former Miss USA Chesley Chris um, is, you know, who was a recent public example of a long time, long time trope that is surrounding the very real strength and resilience of black women, um, often disguised with, you know, a sense of easygoingness, happiness, humor, uh, and willingness to get things done regardless of external circumstances. Um, clearly, that's been a problem, but it's something that has been conditioned within um, this community for many years and, you know, has almost uh, been sort of rewarded for how, you know, great someone's external response to adversity can be, um, which is, you know, sad and it's disheartening um, and unfortunate in this case. Um, and, you know, it's something that's become inherent to us for better, or for worse. So as the signal mentions, women experience depression at rates twice that of men, but black women are only about half as likely as white women to seek care, um, i.e. mental health or, you know, substance uh, assistance. So according to the Center for uh, Disease Control and Pre Prevention, one in five Americans will experience mental illness in a given year. Obviously, the past two years have heightened these statistics. Mm. Um, so my question, Davian, I'm interested um, in your take on this. Um, how can, you know, generally speaking, how can allies or colleagues express compassion to uh, Black female leaders and take into consideration this very real 
um, thing that has long plagued um, this community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just such a devastating story. And as you point out, you know, all too common, I, I would say, you know, the the challenge that exists, right? It's it's all the things we talked about in terms of, you know, being a, a black woman and all that comes with needing to prove yourself and to, you know, what kind of push against the the kind of assumptions um, that are are built into our system, uh, you know, whether that's in, uh, you know, the Miss America America sphere, in the professional sphere, in healthcare. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you push against and when you, um, you know, kind of need to feel like you're um, upholding a certain composure that comes at the, uh, the risk uh, of not seeking out help, not, you know, opening up, um, feeling like you can be vulnerable, because as soon as you are, then it's, you know, the kind of assumptions are being, um, you know, made true in other people's minds often. And so there's so many, I mean, there isn't, you know, one answer to that. It, it all comes back to some of those systemic issues that need to be solved. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. with our, our healthcare systems, mental health, but even in the ways in which we, you know, think about and interact and engage. Um, I mean, we started the conversation, um, you know, in terms of the, the discourse, right, that's happening now as we speak um, with, you know, the Supreme Court nomination and even that, I mean, the, the coded charge language, I mean, I use the example of a, a Republican who's often speaking out, but that's not to say that liberals and others right. aren't, you know, thinking and, you know, subtly, um, you know, alluding to the same kinds of, uh, you know, what racially charged uh, language and issues. So, Again, it's it's not that there's one answer, but I think you know just understanding the complexities and, and the depth uh, around mental health and kind of the weight and burden that Black women endure as it pertains to kind of keeping up a certain image of confidence and uh, you know not projecting that sort of vulnerability and seeking out help where it often is is needed for all of us. So I have a related thought to that, but let me um, let me take us through our final signal here because it's very deeply related. Um, obviously, on top of all the other issues that Black women must deal with, a recent study from the Lean In Foundation on their state of Black women in corporate America found only a third of Black women surveyed said their managers give them the opportunity um, to really manage people and, and projects. Now that's compared to 39% of Latinas, 40% of Asian women, and 43% of white women uh, who said the same. Now, while the numbers clearly reflect like a lack of overall opportunity for women overall. Obviously, it is uh, worse for, uh, for specifically for Black women. But uh, let's talk about some people trying to change that, right? Um, so Dr. Uh, Angelica Gator, uh, the CSO of the Black Women Health Initiative, an organization focused on improving the lives and well-being of Black women, wants to basically change this. So she tells HR Dive in this article that one of her uh, organization's signature programs is an anti-racism toolkit for wellness designed to help Black women mitigate the tolls of microaggressions and structural racism, uh, especially in the workplace. BWHI uh, has also been honing its corporate equity index, which rates companies on fairness, safety, and equity. So the goal is threefold, to put pressure on corporations to do the right thing, uh, holding them accountable to those diversity numbers, something we've discussed a lot here, and creating safer workplaces uh, for Black women, of course. Now, Gator says, rightfully so, by the way, that, quote, we at the Black Women's Health Initiative uh, contend that it cannot and should not be the responsibility of Black women themselves 
to handle the fallout of the pandemic and all of the mental health burdens uh, that that has placed on people. And obviously this comes at a time where we are incredibly conscious of the fact that uh, mental health is deeply tied to physical health. And if you don't feel safe in a workplace, if you feel microaggressed, if you feel under undue, uh, you know, uh, under undue stress because of various parts of your identity, um, that's going to have a physical impact in addition to an emotional one. So the whole goal of the BWHI is to really link those two things together, recognizing that where we work impacts our mental health and that impacts our physical health, bringing that sort of all together. And I well, I wanted to speak quickly about how I thought this related to the last signal, because I think, you know, we intentionally started this briefing by thinking about these Black women who are doing absolutely incredible things, right? I mean, when given the opportunity, a Black woman can do, you know, can can be incredible on this, will, will be incredible on the Supreme Court, can speak for the U.S. during the, you know, biggest post-World War II security crisis in Europe. Black women can do all of this, but we have to recognize that these people are not, in fact, superheroes and that there are other burdens that on them as humans that we, that sometimes I think we forget when we just talk about the history breaking because the history breaking comes with stressors, comes with difficulties. And um, Devery, I was actually curious if, if you wanted to, to weigh in here and, and what are some of the takeaways for this briefing as we leave Black History Month and enter into Women's History Month? I'm, I'm just curious what, what you're thinking about this signal or sort of everything that we've seen today. Um, to Davion's point, I think that the foundation for a, any sort of productive conversation is to um, allow for and offer discourse. And I think, you know, being able to extend compassion and sensitivity towards people who don't look like us is just important. And it's going to be continue to be crucial in order for us to evolve as humans yeah. um, with organizations or other groups that we're a part of. So. I think, you know, just to her point, discourse, like that is the key word is just, you know, creating that conversation and making sure that it continues to move the dial forward and it's productive. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that that was a pretty well-rounded conversation. Thank you to the cast and my co-rafer, Ben uh, Grinspan. Uh, Thanks to everyone on LinkedIn who's participating in the chat below as well. Don't forget to like, to leave a comment. Uh, like I said, this course is very, you know, encouraged here. So join us Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at noon Eastern time for more daily culture briefings. Um, and going into Women's History Month, we have some particularly exciting ones coming up, including a conversation between uh, our CEO, Terry Young, and one of Forbes 100 Most Powerful Women list frequenters, uh, Indri, Indra Nui. So stay tuned. Um, and if you would like to learn more about Q, our AI-powered cultural intelligence platform we use to inform this briefing and how it can put quantified culture at the center of your business, follow the link in the chat uh, to connect with the team. Until then, consider yourselves briefed. Mm -hmm.